Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Designing Enterprise Platforms podcast from Early Adopter Research. I'm Dan Woods, founder and principal analyst at Early Adopter. And today we're talking with Raghu Murthy, founder and CEO of Data Coral, a product that is focused on automating the creation and maintenance of data pipelines. Hi, Raghu. Would you say hello? Hi, Dan. Uh, uh, really happy to be here and excited to chat with you. Yeah, I think this is going to be a fun uh, call. This podcast is focused on how to solve high-value problems using product-based platforms. Our audience is made up of early adopters, that is, business and technology people, who are looking for a way to use enterprise tech to create leverage and have a huge impact on their businesses. Today, as we often do, we're going to talk about data and how technology can create value from data. And now that every business has a wealth of data about its operations and its customers, there's a huge number of products focused on making this data valuable. And it's fascinating to see how these products are designed and implemented. Even if we don't pry the product, we can learn from the ideas that are used inside the products. Each product has a set of ideas and a set of assumptions that we call product dogmas that define its perspective on how to solve a crucial problem facing businesses. Based on these assumptions, a product is defined that creates some sort of technology leverage by making a hard problem easier to solve. And there are many sorts of technology leverage that enterprise technology can create. And we have a, a research mission on earlyadopter.com all about technology leverage, if you'd like to see what's going on with, with our views of what technology leverage is. Now, a product is essentially a packaging of this leverage to focus on a certain type of pain. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to run this playbook and see how we can explain what Data Coral does using this framework. So, Raghu, let's just get started with the sort of origin story. You know, at some point, every founder was sort of struck by lightning and decided, you know what, I got to create a company. So what happened with Data Coral? When did you, what's your background and when did you realize that you had to create this new company? Uh, thanks, Dan. Uh, so my background has been in uh, uh, distributed systems and databases. I've been an engineer most of my career and worked in companies like Yahoo uh, back in the day. Uh, and I've been working on data systems for a while now. Before it was called big data. Back then we just called it large data processing systems. And uh, in those times uh, at Yahoo as well as uh, at Facebook, uh, ended up working on kind of an uh, an overall end-to-end -end data infrastructure stack. So this is from collecting data from different places, organizing the data within uh, databases, and even actually building the databases themselves or building the query engines. Like for example, at Facebook, I was part of the initial team that built uh, Hive, uh, which is a SQL layer on top of Hadoop. And at Facebook itself, I've worked uh, quite a bit on uh, scaling uh, the systems that were having to deal with data within Facebook. So for example, I think when I joined Facebook uh, back in 2008, they had about 50 terabytes of data and like a small cluster, uh, a Hadoop cluster that they were trying to use to kind of query that data. And in about five years, uh, by 2013, by which uh, time I left uh, uh, the Facebook data infrastructure team, we were managing a couple hundred petabytes of data across multiple data centers. And that journey of five years of going from like one cluster to multiple clusters across different databases and building uh, the entire stack from the ground up, because again, there was nothing out there that we could actually use. Uh, that uh, was a huge amount of learnings that uh, I've had and I've had the fortune of kind of actually working on. And, and what's interesting to me about that is that in order to kind of go from that experience to a company, you have to understand that the problems everybody has aren't Facebook's problems, but they're similar, you know? And so I, as we talk, I would really like to talk about how you took that experience with this, you know, web scale, massive thing and decide and understood how to solve, you know, an enterprise level problem, which I imagine you, you view as a different thing. Yeah, absolutely. So in fact, after five years of working on data infrastructure and having dealt with that kind of scale, uh, I'd in fact decided not to work on data infrastructure anymore. I decided to work on other things. And uh, I was working on like the mobile team. I worked on like an enterprise uh, application uh, platform. And uh, about four years ago, I was in EIR at a VC firm called Social Capital. And uh, in fact, what I had told them was that I did, uh, did not want to work on data infrastructure. A lot of it was about uh, 
kind of dealing with large scale systems, especially at, uh, as your uh, data grew. And one of the key things that uh, kind of caused me to kind of get away from data infrastructure, in fact, was the fact that everything around data infrastructure seemed to be around cluster management. So you'd build these distributed systems, and these distributed systems uh, were uh, kind of deployed as these clusters of uh, multiple machines. And providing a data infrastructure as a service for the rest of the organization for us meant that we were just managing these clusters and kind of uh, they would get into bad state, so we'd nurse them back to health. And once they get uh, back into health, then there's a whole bunch of work piled up that then had to be kind of caught up. And then these, so this kind of the whole and these clusters could be either a cluster of a bunch of data in a big file system, like an HDFS file system that was organized into a data lake, or the cluster could be like a massive Teradata uh, infrastructure that was used for analytics. Or the, the idea is that the clusters were all purpose-built for a certain function. Yes, exactly. So at Facebook specifically, so we did have like a fairly large HDFS cluster and a MapReduce cluster that goes along with it. But then even the layers on top of, so this was just a query layer, right? So uh, that is HDFS, MapReduce, and Hive. And there's also kind of a new database or a new query engine called Presto that was just about getting started uh, back then. There's also layers about the data warehouse or the query engine, which is that of being able to collect data into the data warehouse. So again, if you're collecting petabytes of data, then again, you need, uh, clusters of uh, machines that are just receiving the data and writing them, writing them out into uh, the distributed file system. And once the data is in the, uh, in the kind of the, uh, the file system or in the data lake, then you want to actually transform that data. And again, depending on data volume and the different uh, kinds of data that is there, the number, the shared number of uh, queries that get run or the, uh, the transformation steps that run that itself would be a really large scale, right? And just orchestrating these jobs themselves required a distributed system. So that was its own cluster. Got it. So you were basically at essentially the kind of coal face of the hardest, widest, most scalable data supply chain, you know, in the world. I mean, you know, you could compare it to only a couple of other companies like Google, perhaps Amazon, maybe, uh, you know, that, 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 uh, that had a data supply chain that this was wide and this deep and this scalable. Yeah, absolutely. And also it was the pace at which it was growing. So it's kind of interesting that uh, when you think about data infrastructure, uh, it's actually growing kind of geometrically. So for example, Facebook had about, I guess, less than 100 million users back in uh, 2008. And in five years, they went up to like a billion users, right? So it was like, uh, or a 10x or 12x growth, which is pretty amazing. But then when you think about the data uh, volume growth, it is more like four or 5,000x, right? right? So there's more users actually using the product more, which means that they're generating a lot more data. So that's kind of one aspect of data volume. And then as you can imagine, Facebook got better and better at using data to build better products, like uh, make ads better and things like that. So what that meant, was that the data literacy of the company was growing. And that means that there are more people doing more things with the larger volumes of data. So now if you're providing like a central data infrastructure as a service, now that service or that infrastructure needs to grow as kind of like a multiple of the data volume, the data diversity and the data usage. Got it. And so what came out of this, I imagine, is some principles of how to do this right. Yep, absolutely. And uh, there are many things that we had to kind of keep reinventing because, and this is again, one of the things about data infrastructure is at, a, at some scale, whatever system works, if you take it a couple orders of magnitude higher, then that particular system is just down on its knees. So we had to, as you can imagine, as we are growing so quickly, we had to keep reinventing how we even store files, uh, how we query uh, the data, how do we even kind of run the jobs that were uh, kind of uh, running the queries, like things right. like that. So yeah, would, yeah. Uh, somebody from Uber that I talked to once said, there are very few architectures that can withstand a 100x increase in traffic. Yep, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so anyway, so now let's get to the second part uh, and, and talk about how you understand the kind of what I call the product dogmas of data coral. 
Now, mm-hmm. what I mean by the product dogmas are the core assumptions you're making about uh, the problem that exists in the market, why that problem exists, why that problem is growing, and how to address you know that and and solve that, and how to how to how did you choose the right scope? Because the great thing about data infrastructure is that some people are just solving one thing, like you know the data prep companies are saying, look, there's a very difficult user interface problem that when we want to take data engineering that's done in coding and move that into a, a leverage uh, of, of, a, of a data prep uh, system so that the, the leverage gotten there is that you know, more people can be involved in doing this complex work and more people can be, do it successfully because they, they have guidance. Um, so let's just talk about you know, wh- what you conceived of as you know, the kind of core dogmas or the, pro- the product dogmas of data coral. Yeah, so in fact, I, I don't think I answered your previous question, which was that how does that web scale data infrastructure kind of, how does that translate into something that enterprises need? Um, although the problems are the same, the scales are like fairly different, right? So one of the main things that I've actually learned about data infrastructure, as I said, in terms of how it scales is that you want to kind of look ahead in terms of what kind of scales you might get into and choose the right technologies up front so that you don't have to re-architect something before uh, like you start scaling, right? So uh, <clears throat> that's one of the kind of the core things is that if you're a growing company, you should always kind of think about your data infrastructure actually growing much faster than you can typically predict. So then you start looking at a small company or uh, a growing company which has maybe just like a few hundreds of gigabytes of data, you should be thinking in terms of tens of terabytes scale already if you're planning for your company to grow, right? So again, a growing company typically means that they're leveraging a lot of their data and the data volumes also start growing fairly uh, quickly. So that means that you're actually thinking kind of a couple steps ahead or a couple of orders of magnitude ahead. And when you think, when I, I was in EIR at this VC firm called Social Capital, and I was talking to a lot of their portfolio companies. So these were kind of smaller companies, maybe Series A, B, or even kind of uh, further along the uh, along their journey. And invariably, they would all tell me that their data infrastructure is kind of behind. So they would like to use all of this data, but then it's sitting in different places, and they need a whole bunch of engineering to, to even centralize all of that data. And once the data is actually centralized, they needed a whole bunch of automation to be able to even transform or get the data to get to a queryable state as well as do a bunch of the analysis. And then finally, to be able to do the analysis is one thing, but to be able to leverage the analysis instead of just showing dashboards to people, you want to kind of make the data actionable, right? So everybody talks about kind of getting data to be actionable, but then not many actually end up uh, getting to that because they're pretty much stuck doing the baseline of just getting the data to even be queryable. So I talked to company after company that kept telling me about these same uh, kind of uh, problems. And clearly I'd kind of worked on these kinds of problems at much, much larger scales. And uh, I was like, well, this all seems kind of fair. I'm hearing the same thing over and over again. Why is it that there is something that's not available for all of them? Right. And this is also around the same time when these are all kind of cloud native companies even. Right. So they are using the cloud quite a lot. So they know how to use other services. They don't have the whole, hey, if it is not built here, it will not work. So they are okay, kind of using other kind of technologies or technologies managed by others. But then what they realize is even with that, they need a significant amount of engineering to put those pieces together. So I can go into this whole other kind of topic around how the clouds are behaving, right? So they frankly don't care what technology you use as long as you use them, right? So they're kind of not really opinionated about how to build specific systems. They'll give you uh, services that can work at different scales. And then it's up to you as a company to kind of figure out what are the right things to put together when. So that also means that when there are other vendors, like you talked about kind of data prep companies, they all kind of as vendors themselves, they are building uh, services, frankly, even on the cloud too. So they are also having to make these choices of which are the services within the clouds that they have to kind of put together to offer the service that they do. 
and invariably this means that this whole expertise of building systems needs to not only be within specific companies but also in the vendors and all of that talent is kind of pretty hard to come by okay so just to recap what you're saying is that first of all one of your core dogmas is that data will grow faster than you expect and you it's wise to prepare for massive data problems the data infrastructure falls behind much fast much faster than you expect and you you have to make sure that you can keep up that work on data infrastructure crowds out the work on the last mile of making data actionable and that while the cloud vendors provide raw materials and vendors of themselves also use those raw materials the key value creation is figuring out the right architecture so that you can meet your own business needs and the cloud neither the cloud vendors nor the vendors themselves are really selling you that architecture although you know they do have reference architectures in 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 um in clouds but i'm assuming that you would consider those relatively superficial compared to what would really solve a problem right i i mean these reference architectures are great to kind of learn what might work in like an idealized environment but then company to company the requirements are fairly kind of different both in terms of data volumes and data diversity so then there are some cases where uh, people feel like the reference architecture is kind of over engineering and in other cases they feel like okay it's under engineered so at some point that and uh, hence they are called reference architectures right they are not just recipes that you can just kind of press a button and get the entire thing set up just for you so Got that's uh, that's essentially what uh, the current state of art frankly even is got it and so the idea now is that you realize that then there's that you had to choose a certain problem to solve that you felt was important and that would address this because the 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 end to end you know scope of activities involved in this is large so i assume you didn't choose oh we're not going to create a new database you know and you said no we're not going to create a new set of dashboarding systems like tableau or click or anything like that but you decided you were going to create something else what was it that you decided you were going to create and why so that's interesting because i kind of talk about uh, this notion of a white space that every company has to fill out right so when you think about uh, data in general so it's sitting in a bunch of systems that are being used for you to build a business or kind of uh, like you might have like databases that are used in your application you might use tools like salesforce or zendesk or any of these other kind of saas services to actually even build out your business and you might have applications that are generating kind of data based on your user activity or whatever else right so your data generators are like the, your data sources are already there right so they're not going away and these clouds or any other uh, uh, kind of providers uh, they give you data warehouses i mean i've worked on enough uh, kind of query engines in my career to to not want to build yet another one um but and at the same time uh, there are uh, query engines that are actually pretty good right so if you put data into them in the right uh, uh, kind of uh, layout then queries on uh, on that kind of data would actually uh, be pretty fast in these warehouses and of course data visualization is like a completely different uh, kind of ball game like it's a lot more to do with human computer interaction like how do you visualize data and so on and that's also something that i feel like they're actually pretty good tools right so like a tableau or uh, like a looker and those kinds of tools and kind of the last mile frankly is kind of getting the data to be actionable so i was talking to somebody uh, in one of these kind of dashboarding kind of companies where uh, they kind of uh, said that okay it's kind of internally acknowledged that data goes into dashboards to die so what that means is that people build dashboards uh, they start looking at the data for a little bit and then they realize one of those little widgets is kind of uh, uh, kind of the data is not getting refreshed so if that dashboard is actually super important then there's like this huge fire drill to go fix that particular widget but then if it is kind of this marginal kind of dashboard that somebody looks at then they're like okay this is broken so i might i, I might not get uh, that much value so they stop going to the dashboard but then the need for dashboard never uh, goes away because they want to look at all people want to look at all of these kinds of numbers so anyway so that's kind of a digression around kind of these dashboarding companies. right and and so but, ultimately you're saying that the problem is that what you don't have that you need 
is the ability to easily create data pipelines that extract data, uh, reshape it into whatever form, and then deliver it to wherever it's needed. Not necessarily, uh, you know, you know, by building a dashboard, but by delivering it to the to the to the environment that you will use, whether it's a spreadsheet, whether it's a a, a data discovery system, or, or or an application, or whatever you want. Right. So this whole white space that I talked about is how do you make sure that data is actually flowing consistently from your sources into a database where it can actually be queried, and then there is still. Uh, uh, more systems that are needed to be able to uh, kind of operationalize the transformations within the data warehouses themselves. And once the data is actually transformed and is ready to be consumed, being able to push the data into the systems where the users live. So that kind of thing, that's kind of a data pipeline. And that is what every company has to uh, kind of build out. And there are multiple options for it. And for the most part, actually, a lot of the companies decide to kind of build it on their own. They might choose like some open source tools, but then there's a significant amount of engineering that goes into actually gluing all of these systems together, uh, not only in terms of the interface, but also how is the data flowing, right? So are you able to kind of uh, get good visibility into how the data is flowing? So those are some of the problems that I worked on in the past, and I realized that most companies are trying to solve it Again, they're trying to solve uh, the baseline problems of just collecting the data, so they're not getting to the higher level problems of once I collect, organize, and kind of uh, publish the data or like harness that data, how does the management of it work? And that requires a whole bunch of other thinking that is needed that uh, I didn't see uh, too many tools provide that out of the box. So your your assumption is that there is a need to create and automate the creation of data pipelines. There's a need to auto, auto, automate the management and evolution of those data pipelines. And if you could do that, then all of a sudden, the dashboards don't die anymore. They, they stay fresh and alive because they have updated data. And of the amount, the number of people that can participate in creating data pipelines goes up. You can have a lot more people do, do this work. Yeah, so making it kind of low code or like more declarative rather than kind of using scripting languages means that analysts or uh, people who just know SQL, and there's quite a lot of people who know SQL, they should be able to piece together end-to-end -end, uh, data flows, if you will. They're not actually doing the plumbing. They're just thinking about the data itself, the shape and semantics of the data. So, and that results in the pipeline getting automatically generated and run and uh, kept consistent and up to date and all of that good stuff. Got it. And so, and also just as a, in terms of a product kind of vision, I'm assuming that the idea is that you have well-behaved data that comes into your, as an entry point. And if you're, you're, you're doing something like um, uh, heavy duty data engineering or heavy duty data prep or data quality, you want to do that before it arrives in data coral. And then in data coral, what you want to be able to do is simple joins to blend together two or three or four data sets, maybe add a new data set of your own, et cetera. You don't necessarily want to be doing heavy duty data transformation inside there. So again, it depends. So uh, there are kind of data prep tools that allow you a visual way of specifying how to clean the data. But those uh, uh, tools, in some sense, kind of come up with the rules that are needed to kind of uh, clean and enrich the data, right? But then you want the cleaning of the data to be done in uh, in a synchronous way to kind of net new data coming in from different sources. So, for example, if there is new data being generated all the time from the, your production databases or from your applications, and you want an end-to-end -end data flow that is not only collecting the data, but then once the data is collected, it is actually enriched and then it is moved further ahead for kind of further processing. So that is what is the problem that we are solving, right? So yes, this does overlap with some of the data prep tools that exist out there. But what we have found is that for the most part, people are not doing kind of really heavyweight data prep before loading into a data lake. A lot of the times it is ELT, right? So it is extract, load, and then transform. Right. And and at that point, what that means is that the transformations are kind of specifiable in uh, 
uh, data warehouse. Right. So, so you're yeah. saying that 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 maybe you aren't going to be doing data engineering inside Data Coral, but you are going to be doing more than just trivial uh, joins. Yeah. Yeah. So, in fact, what we are thinking of is uh, a way uh, like Data Coral provides you that. Uh, kind of glue that can tie all of these systems together, right? So what I mean by that is think of uh, somebody building an ingest pipeline, right? So if you are, uh, instead of thinking of building an ingest pipeline, if somebody told you that by just writing a SQL statement like select from Salesforce connection parameters into my table, and then automatically an ingest pipeline gets generated and data starts flowing, then that's a much different kind of an experience and some uh, something that will enable or empower a data scientist or a data analyst than saying, okay, I now need to ingest data from Salesforce, so let me write a whole bunch of kind of scripts and build out the pipelines that are needed to fetch data from these different, uh, from Salesforce and then load that into a table inside of the warehouse. So that's just kind of like a, uh, a key difference in thinking of uh, about data flows versus data pipelines. Right, and this is where you're you're talking about the 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 the, the low code aspect of it. First of all, what you're always building in Data Coral is streams to update stuff. Second of all, you're building it using as as a low code declarative method. In other words, mm -hmm. that's got right. it. And so, and then third of all, you 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 can do some of the messier data transformations if you need. Now, do you actually drop people into Python or something like that if they needed to write code, or do you do you have like a, a your own transformation language, or how does that work? Uh, yeah, so actually, uh, so I, I kind of uh, go back to this a little bit uh, in terms of uh, like SQL uh, as uh, not just as a language, but also as like an abstraction philosophy, if you will. So SQL is kind of pretty good about. Uh, like it's pretty opinionated about the kind of abstractions that it provides, right? One is it says uh, to the user who's writing SQL, don't tell me how to do something, just tell me what you need. So that's kind of uh, one level yeah. of- And that's its declarative nature, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. But then there is another very key aspect of it, which is that it tells you to be very clear on what the data dependencies are. Think from clause of a SQL query. Right, so I know exactly what data I need to be able to answer the question that I have. Right, so but SQL has made these kind of two choices of uh, the declarative language and being very explicit on data dependencies that allows an underlying system, a database, to be able to run very efficient kind of data processing to be able to give you the answers. So we have leveraged that exact same philosophy, but for data flows. So when you think about building a data pipeline the it's kind of the opposite right so you're telling exactly how you're saying run this job and then this job and then this job but then because it's all of this is written in python or like some scripting language you don't really know what the data dependencies are they're all hidden inside of these scripts so what that means is that debugging these pipelines is actually pretty hard right so what we have said is okay let's kind of apply the same uh, kind of abstraction model that sql has which is just declare, but then make data dependencies explicit, right? And, but then we'll do it for end-to-end -end data flows. So a user who just knows SQL, as I mentioned, like they can just get data from some external system by writing something declarative. And then it gets, data starts showing up in a data lake or a data warehouse. And at that point, you have full access to the SQL of the data warehouse to specify all the transformations. We use this notion of views or materialized views specifically. Uh, it's, so that's kind of the abstraction model, but the underlying implementation is completely different. I can get to that if that's uh, that's interesting. So, and the idea is that, that, that cleaning. Yeah. yeah you, you, so, so, so the first part of the story is I've got 20 different um, sources and I'm going to flow them together into tables that are connected in various ways where the data dependencies are clear. And those dependencies are the, the landed data, what I call it, you know. Right. And then once you've got the landed data there, then you can create the modeled data, which is the next step, using views, which are expressions of transformations on the landed data using SQL as a foundation, it sounds like, yep. and, and maybe enhanced with some other transformation uh, yep, assistance. Exactly. So, 
yeah exactly so you talked about kind of dropping people uh, into like python or allowing them to use python to do more complex transformations so it turns out again sql has thought about this or like uh, a while ago so there's this notion of user defined table functions so what that means is it allows you kind of full freedom to kind of do all kinds of processing on an entire table's worth of data and then kind of spit out whatever the the resulting data set looks like right so we have leveraged uh, this notion of table functions to be able to allow kind of people to specify much more complicated transformations that they would need, which is not kind of directly representable in SQL. Got it. And so, so then that gets you to what I call the model data, which is a data that is purpose built for a general purpose in your, your enterprise. Then the next step is usually the purpose built data, which is the data that is for one specific dashboard application, to support an autonomous system or whatever. And so how do you go from that model data to the, uh, to the uh, 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 purpose-built data? Yeah, so as far as we are concerned, so again, uh, we, I talked about kind of the ELT kind of model, right? So cleaning up or prepping the data is one kind of T or one kind of transformations, but then doing per like producing purpose-built data is just another kind of transformation, which is just downstream. Got it. So you just do another layer of transformation. It's really exactly. the same, same technology. Exactly. So it just views and views on top of other views. Right? Got it. And so at the end of this, you have then a data set that can be accessed. Now, is that delivered as an extract or is that delivered through a query or how? Yeah. So the last part of the end-to-end -end data flow, as I mentioned, is uh, kind of making the data actionable, right? So we talked about E, L, and T, but then the last part is P, which is publish. So we allow people to even specify that take some data set that's sitting in your data warehouse or data lake and publish it into applications. Or of course, like because these are data is living in a database, like you can have a visualization tool directly connect to the database and pull the data as well, right? So what we offer is a way for users to uh, kind of choose what they want to do with the transformed data or the data that is actionable and then to actually take the actions directly as well. Got right? it. So, yeah. So, so the idea is that essentially, the, if we, we now move to the product uh, functionality, I mean, I think that the core dogmas here are essentially, you know, we, we, we've reviewed them already. And that is that the world has a large number of data sources that need to be created into data pipelines so that they can be constantly refreshed using a declarative method to do that, where the data dependencies are clear, allows you to create constructs, higher level constructs that allow this work to be done, you know, on a declarative uh, way. And in and and, and these declarative statements are, I, I assume you have your own declarative language at some le level that allow you to assemble this stuff? No, actually a lot of it, so again, there is the extract and load, which is what we call collect. So there are, uh, so we have come up with like a, uh, SQL-like syntax for it, but most of the transformations, they're specified in the SQL dialect of the underlying data warehouse or data lake, right? And the published side is kind of the dual of the collect side, which is that you can all also say, okay, uh, select into Salesforce uh, parameters and into this object from this particular table in the data warehouse. And that results in like an egress pipeline that can take this data and convert that into API calls that go into applications. But now, are you saying that, that, that somebody who's using Redshift would be using Redshift's version of SQL and somebody's using Snowflake would be using Snowflake's version of SQL? That's right. That's right. They get and, full access to uh, the underlying database. And so then what's the low code aspect of it, if, the, if that's the case? So the, they're using SQL for the transformations. But then once they decide that they want to take that SQL or take the transformation and make it into a pipeline, that requires zero additional code. Right, so they take whatever SQL they have and they create a view on top uh, view using that SQL definition, and that results in a pipeline getting automatically generated. Right, so I can maybe elaborate a little. Got it. No, I, I get you're saying. So you you specify the transformations, and then the the whole architecture of this is instead of having to say the how of the pipeline, you just de declare that you want a pipeline, and that that it you you want it to reference these data, these transformations, and then. Then it starts. Then then it starts existing and and running. Yes, exactly. So because it's all data dependency based rather than job and task based, 
you have somebody who's just writing, who knows how to write SQL, who's just saying, okay, I know that I transform data this way and I'm going to name it. So that's the view name. And then I can use this view in other queries, right? So yeah. what that means is that the data dependencies are kind of compiled by us because we know that we can look at all of these view definitions and we are constructing the pipeline out of that, right? And again, databases have this notion of materialized views, but then there are a whole bunch of constraints around uh, kind of uh, like a full implementation of materialized views. What we have done is constrain the problem uh, around kind of how often the materialized, so materialized views have this whole uh, incremental view update problem. Uh, and it's been a research problem for a really long time. And given that they've not been able to completely figure it out, that is when people started creating data pipelines and creating derived data using these pipelines, right? Yeah. Instead of just declaring views. So what we said was that just felt like throwing away the baby with the bathwater. Like you gave up on the abstraction model that materialized views offer. And instead you just went directly to writing kind of uh, imperative code or writing yeah. script. Yeah, instead right. of actually leveraging materialized views. So, so, and then the way that, the, that, that uh, data coral works is you have a collect component that brings all the data in, uh, mm -hmm. and at least it doesn't bring it in, but it creates flows to bring it in. You then, let's say if you wanted to have a certain subset of your, your Salesforce data uh, you know, represented in a data coral pipeline, then you would define that in the collect function. Then that would be brought in to whatever data infrastructure you could transform it on the way into its, its materialized state or its, its view. And then you can transform it on the way out using SQL and, and user-driven functions and everything. And then uh, you can create as many layers of transformation as you want to create as many layers of views. But then all of, all of a sudden, the change data capture, the data logistics, to make sure that at any one point that view is up to date, that's what Data Coral does and make sure it happens. Yes. Exactly. So that's literally the kind of our, what we believe our defensible kind of advantage is, right? So given that people are specifying something declarative, we capture kind of metadata and we make sure that there's a consistent kind of view of how the data is flowing. And that's kind of uh, what allows us to provide uh, uh, like a robust pipeline underneath. The second thing that we have done is built out this whole kind of underlying system using purely serverless technologies. So we use so technologies like AWS Lambda, we use like containers in some other cases, we use kind of PaaS services uh, uh, for kind of metadata management and things like that. So what that means is that the underlying kind of the infrastructure itself or the, the, the pipeline uh, implementation is actually really robust. Right, so there's no cluster management, if you will, like kind of uh, going back to the beginning of the the podcast. I talked about how cluster management is pretty hard. Uh, we have completely kind of gotten away from doing any kind of cluster management because the entire pipeline is uh, serverless. So, so and you, so you support a variety of sources of data, and then what kind of uh, data warehouses do you support? Which which ones do you do you choose? Yeah, so uh, we started off with uh, Redshift because again we were on AWS and. Uh, AWS also uh, started offering Athena, which is Presto as a service. So we kind of added support for that. And there's Snowflake, which is kind of becoming super popular nowadays. So uh, we have support for that as well. And we plan to add support for more kind of warehouses in kind of other clouds as well. Got it. And so uh, the and then the um, when when somebody tries to access a, a data, they access it either through going to a directory where the data has been published and there's a file there, or they use, they query into the data warehouse using SQL. Yeah, so in terms of, uh, so there might be data that's sitting in files, but we are able to provide, uh, we provide connectors directly into tools, right? So if you're able to, or databases, so if you have a production database, we have a serverless ingest that can fetch data from your, or fetch the changes from your production databases and then apply those changes into your warehouse. Got it. But I mean, I'm talking about the other end, at the, at the consumption end. Oh, the consumption end is also similar where you can publish to a production database as well as publish to like tools like Salesforce and other kind of uh, applications. Or if they so want to query, if they want to query a view through SQL, they can query it through SQL. Yes, they can directly access because again, the data warehouse is their choice and we make it, 
completely available for them to use. Got it. So, um, uh, so it sounds like that essentially what you're doing is you're, you're taking something, a bunch of different things, you know, like, uh, 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 data log is one one thing that reminds me of this a little bit. Uh, Casca log also reminds me of you know taking data log and then de de declaring the the data that you wanted and then having a, a pipeline be generated to, to 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 populate that. Also, the idea of taking something like Airflow and you know from 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 Airbnb's uh, you know data pipeline uh, sort of uh, system orchestration system and then productizing that, you know, and putting declarative statements on the top so that, you know, you don't have to do all the coding, but, it, but it's all sort of generated. It, it, yeah, that's, exactly. what, that's what it feels like. Yeah, absolutely. So when you think about like each of these different systems that you talked about, a lot of it requires engineering, right? So you're, you're building these jobs and tasks, you're building all of this kind of uh, scripts to, uh, which is essentially kind of uh, combining the business logic of the data, the actual transformations you want to do, along with the orchestration logic, right? So as in run this job and then this job and these are the dependencies and so on, you're explicitly kind of hand coding these things. So this almost feels like kind of assembly language, right? So because you're having to piece these things together manually, that is why you require a lot of engineering, right? So there's in fact, uh, uh, like another uh, kind of analogy, which is uh, even within the kind of the data uh, or big data space, which is Hive, right? So this is uh, the query engine that I worked on. Before there was Hive, uh, people were writing MapReduce jobs. So they would write all of these uh, scripts that would uh, first run one MapReduce job and take the output, run another MapReduce job and so on. And all of the orchestration was also hand coded. Along came Hive and said, hey, you know what? Just write SQL and we'll compile that into a bunch of MapReduce jobs and all of the job dependencies and stuff is something that the Hive execution engine will figure out, right? So that's essentially what we have done is we have taken a data pipeline, which feels like more like assembly language or like more low level. And we have kind of uh, provided like a higher level abstraction layer that allows uh, kind of more people to be able to build really robust pipelines. Um. There was another system, I thought it was, maybe the company that commercialized it was called Concurrent, uh, but uh, there was another open source system that was uh, about, you know, creating these abstract pipelines. Um, uh, I, I'm not familiar with uh, Yeah, I'll right? think of it in a, in, in a second. Current was <laughs> bought by another company, um, but, and then how would you compare what you're doing to something like Qbowl? So Kubel uh, actually is providing uh, kind of more low-level infrastructure, right? So they're like, for example, uh, they provided uh, an actually a pretty good query engine, right? So they have uh, they they provided Hive and uh, Presto and even Spark as a service, and they've spent a significant amount of resources trying to make that efficient, as in being able to process uh, large amounts of data in like uh, using their kind of uh, the auto scaling features or like uh, automatically provisioning uh, capabilities that they've added. But when you think about building a data pipeline on top of whatever they offer, they, they offer Airflow as a service, right? So as a customer of Kubol, I need engineers to be able to build these data pipelines. Right, right. got it. So the, the, the system I was talking about was cascading. Oh, cascading, um, yes. Yeah, yeah. With yeah. That, the concurrent was the company that was commercializing it, and they had oh, a performance okay. management system on top of it called Driven. And cascading was like a, uh, a something. Is it was a little bit uh, similar, except it was sort of a, a a more abstract way to code up a data pipeline. It wasn't about being declarative, but it was about being able to program at a higher level and have that then rendered into either a Hadoop cluster or some other 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 way of executing it. Yeah, actually I'm uh, uh, fairly familiar with cascading because that was one of the, I guess the competing abstractions on top of MapReduce uh, along with Hive and Pig, there's the other one that Yahoo was working on uh, back in the day, right? So cascading was more programmatic. It did allow you to kind of sequence a bunch of MapReduce jobs and specify the right dependencies. But again, uh, there have been uh, uh, kind of uh, all of these different systems where people say we want NoSQL, but then 
more or less uh, SQL as one out, right, as an abstraction model. Uh, so yeah, I'm familiar with cascading. I actually did not realize that uh, it was commercialized, and in fact, looks like it was bought by Talon recently. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, so what is the 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 sweet spot for the kind of companies that are that are adopting Data Coral? Where are you? What use cases are getting the most traction? So, uh, as you can imagine, like what we are building is actually fairly broad, and we believe that we can actually solve uh, for. Uh, very different kinds of use cases or business use cases. But the similarity is always that uh, companies who are trying to kind of up their data game, if you will, right? So either they have nothing in terms of uh, like a data warehousing strategy or they have a data warehousing strategy or like they, uh, they're building one, they're not happy with it and they're trying to rethink how their data warehouse is actually going to uh, be valuable for them. And in those cases, they might pick a data warehouse, but then they have to pick a whole bunch of software around the data warehouse, right? So we talked about kind of collecting the data, organizing uh, like the orchestration of the organization of the data and even publishing of the data. So in those cases, uh, they realize that they need to buy a bunch of services as well as uh, have like an engineering team or have a bunch of expertise that can actually leverage it. Got so, it. For now, we are going after companies that are kind of mid-market to kind of early enterprises where they're growing, they are finding that uh, whatever systems they have, either they want to rethink it or they want to kind of do net new uh, data warehousing uh, kind of projects. So we tell them, okay, you can choose your data warehouse, but then we can help you with the rest. Got it. And so it sounds like that the sweet spot is companies that are struggling to build this data infrastructure to support a, no, a growing number of data pipelines who realize that that is going to be a bottleneck for them and who start to do it and realize, oh, my God, I don't want to have to spend so much of my hard-earned investment money on this type of infrastructure. I want to spend it on more value-creating, differentiating stuff. So that's why they would end up buying Data Coral. To, to, to sim the leverage they get is, is simplifying this data integration problem, this data pipeline management problem, and, um, and that's, that's, that's the leverage they get off of this. Yeah, and in fact, one thing that I've actually not mentioned until now, and this is one of the key things that uh, I believe we differentiate in as well, is that we offer software as a service, right? So we offer our product uh, uh, as a fully managed service, but then because we are built in a completely serverless manner, it is actually fairly straightforward for us. And we do it this way. We actually deploy all of our software within our customer's environment. So companies that really care about their data privacy, and nowadays I believe every company should care about data privacy, they uh, find us attractive because they no longer lose control of their data, right? So no data is flowing through data coral systems. In fact, we can even prove to our customers that Nobody in Data Coral even can see the data because it's all encrypted using their keys. So companies that, there, there of course, there are some companies that are a lot more sensitive about their data privacy and some that are. But the companies that are really sensitive about their data privacy, uh, they find that our offering where we kind of provide the convenience, the convenience aspect of uh, as a service, as well as kind of uh, allowing them to not, uh, or to have full control over who gets to see their data. So that is something that uh, uh, we're finding that companies that care about data privacy, they really like that. And where do you go from here? What are, you, what are your predictions for how this uh, problem will grow and how data infrastructure will change? And, and, and what do you see as the strengths and the weaknesses of the large cloud players with respect to data infrastructure? So I think the, uh, everybody will agree that the, uh, the amount of data that most companies are having to manage is only going to grow. And there will always be a need for uh, like these levels of abstraction that allows people who are your, I guess your citizen data scientists or citizen uh, data analysts, people who know, uh, uh, who, who are kind of uh, literate about data, but not really uh, want to get into the details of the underlying plumbing or the underlying systems. They'll keep asking for kind of better and better abstractions. And then it'll be up to, uh, vendors like us and others, and even the clouds for that matter, to be able to provide these abstractions that allows these people to kind of leverage data without really having to think about underlying systems. Now, when you think about kind of the large cloud players, uh, I think I mentioned it a little while earlier, is that they offer 
all kinds of services, right? So their incentives are, uh, in fact, to be the opposite of being opinionated, right? So we are pretty opinionated about kind of how stuff has to be built out. But large cloud players say, okay, it doesn't matter what technology is out there or what technologies people might want to use. We want them to be within our uh, uh, cloud, right? Or within our offering. And that kind of diversity is only going to grow. And what that means is that the cognitive load for companies is actually only going to grow as well. So today, if people have like 10 options for a data warehouse, five years from now, 10 years from now, there might be like a hundred options, all for like slivers of use cases. And then there is still need for expertise for somebody to uh, kind of uh, come in and say, okay, I want this kind of uh, query engine for this type of workload and other kinds of other kinds of workloads. And then again, there'll be people, there'll be more and more people using the data, but then that also means that the abstractions need to keep getting better. Got it. Um... It's in, in this in this way. It's very similar to the uh, uh, another article that I wrote about. Um, it's actually in the technology leverage article. It's about Kurzweil's theory of um, of uh, exponential growth of technology, and you, the idea is you start out with low level services and it takes a long time to get them done. Then you t you build higher level services on top of those, and 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 essentially those become more powerful and they become more fit to purpose. Then you have even higher level services on top of those that, that are even more powerful and even more fit to various purposes. And what you're essentially doing is, is building higher level services and, and making sure that they're declarative so, yeah, that you can, so, that they're so, so that their implementation can be abstracted from their use. Yeah, exactly. So I kind of would like to uh, maybe kind of go one step further, which says that the more like it starts getting more and more specific. But then after a point, you start realizing that there are many more commonalities, so it starts becoming general again. So uh, again, this is kind of going back to, uh, or talking about if you uh, think about machine learning or AI, like the ultimate goal is general AI, right? So there is more and more custom-built AI that's being worked on, but right. then the ultimate goal is kind of being more generated. Right, no, no, at a certain layer yeah. that you realize that, there, that now we have 15 services of this layer, wait, we only need three or one. Yep. You know, exactly. I, I get what you yep. mean. Okay, well, then, yeah, sorry. go ahead, no. go ahead. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I think the high level thing is that there are, it just means that there is a much bigger population of people who are leveraging tools. Earlier, it was a very small fraction of programmers. Now it's many, many more people. And that is what these abstractions enable. Got it. Well, Raghu, thank you so much. This has been a really good podcast. And again, this is the Designing Enterprise uh, Platforms podcast from Early Adopter Research. We try to study how to make technology create high value in various use cases. And today we talked with Raghu Murthy from Data Coral about his system for automating the creation of data pipelines using declarative uh, technology uh, and implemented in a cloud, uh, cloud platform. So thank you very much. Thank you.